This is Trinity Western University's Chapel Podcast, where our daily chapel gatherings are captured and shared for the TWU community. Whatever your day looks like today, we're glad you're tuning in. Let's hear the word of the Lord together. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he too fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. And a large crowd followed and pressed around him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So this is a familiar scene in Mark's gospel. We see a Jesus on the move, a Jesus who is, as Reverend James reminds us to be, someone living on purpose. And try as he may to get away from the constant attention, Jesus, having just cast a legion of demons out of a tormented man into a herd of pigs, has left an angry crowd on one side of the lake, only to be greeted by an eager crowd on the other side. And Jesus always draws a crowd, and with good reason, whether it's a man being freed from the grip of demonic oppression or a community whose livestock and livelihood quite literally runs off a cliff, when Jesus comes to the neighborhood, things change. And Jairus, for one, is desperate for things to change. His daughter's dying, and he's run out of options. So he does what many others throughout Mark's gospel are said to have done. He falls on his face and pleads for mercy at the feet of Jesus. The crowds may be there for a photo op, but Jairus is there for love. The love of his dear daughter, a love that's pulling him to look past his positional authority as a churchman, uh, to look past any residual pride or concern for what others might think of him, to kneel himself down, crumpled at Jesus' feet, and to beg for help. And we're told neither what Jesus says nor what emotions are written on his face in response to Jairus, but we are told that Jesus goes with Jairus. And, and how could Jesus not be moved by this display of paternal love, by this act of desperate faith? So he follows with the crowd continuing on close behind. And then there's abrupt halt in the narrative. Uh, yesterday, Reverend James shared the story of a certain woman in a crowd who's also desperate for things to change, and, and she's so desperate that she too pushes through the crowd with a singular focus on Jesus, whose touch of healing is the only source of hope that she's got left after 12 years of persistent bleeding and many physicians' failed attempts to cure her. And religious protocol would dictate that being ceremonially unclean she keeps her distance from the crowd, not least from the rabbi himself. But yet in desperation, she presses on, reaches for the edge of Jesus' cloak, and immediately experiences complete physical healing. That's good news for everybody except Jairus. 
Because Jairus' story is jarringly sort of interrupted by this story. And to back up a moment, this is a literary technique known uh, in academic circles as interpolation. It's also been dubbed the Markin sandwich because Mark's gospel is filled with stories in this A, B, A pattern. Uh, and we'll return to the significance of this interruption a bit later, but while we're on that topic, you should know I hate interruptions. I can't stand them. I'm highly introverted. I'm task-focused. You should also know that my uh, lovely wife, she's here somewhere, uh, with, with my little, my little three-year-old Simon, uh, she's due with our third little boy. Um, and and it, yeah, it's great news. She's doing May. We're pretty pumped. Our home is loud, and uninterrupted time is always at a premium. But it's in this particular context that I've really come to appreciate Henry Nouwen's reflection in his book called Reaching Out. He says this, quote, My whole life I've been complaining that my work was constantly interrupted until I discovered that interruptions were my work. And if you're anything like me, this prayer uh, from Richard Foster, whose words I often borrow in moments of hurry, which uh, you can read that as most of the time, may hold something for you as well. He says this, Holy Spirit of God, please show me how to view interruptions as doors to service. So what interruptions might God be inviting you to pay attention to? Because clearly, by very definition, they're not part of your plan, but they might be part of God's plan. And nothing catches him off guard. So back to the untimely interruption of Jairus' plan. So I just wonder what he makes of all of this, being sidelined by someone unclean, a stranger, a woman. I wonder what he thinks about the miracle that he has just witnessed. Does he feel hopeful? Maybe this will happen for my daughter too. Is he indignant? Is he impatient? Is he excited? Well, for a brief moment, which must have felt like an eternity, Jairus waits, and he's relegated to the role of a background actor, an extra, while Jesus calls this unnamed woman into the spotlight so she can declare aloud what she has just experienced and so that she can finally be seen and in being seen, be made whole. But perhaps more importantly, Jesus gives this unnamed woman a name. Look at Mark 5:34. He said to her, daughter, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. It's a beautiful, tender moment of connection. But what about Jairus? Well, verse 35 tells us that, well, Jesus is still speaking. Some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader, and said, your daughter's dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? So as Jesus releases his daughter from 12 long years of suffering, must Jairus now return home to bury his daughter after 12 short years of life? Those who come to Jairus with the news of his daughter's death reveal a few temptations I think we're all susceptible to. And the first one is to only relate to Jesus on the basis of what he can do for us. Right? I don't like what you're dishing out, so I'll just take my business elsewhere, thanks. Um, another temptation is to believe that our requests, or worse yet, like our very selves, at the core of who we are, are a bother to Jesus. 
we're not worth his time. But whether we're more tempted to look uh, at ourselves as too deserving or as too unworthy, Jesus spells out the remedy in verse 36. Overhearing what the members of Jairus' household have said, Jesus tells him, don't be afraid, just believe. So in other words, instead of looking at yourself, instead of looking at your circumstances, look at me. So we'll pick up on the remainder of this narrative. Verses 37 to 43 say this. Jesus did not let anyone follow him except for Peter, James, and John, the brother of Jesus. Or sorry, the brother of James. When they came to the synagogue leader, to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. Sounds an awfully lot like the uh, Crossley house. Um, He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. And they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. And he gave strict orders not to tell anyone about this and told them to give her something to eat. The truth is, it's very easy for me to get fixated on the miracle itself. So I've got to pull back from this fixation, recognizing that it's a pretty modern, mainly Western problem. So to quote scholar Bonnie Thurston, she says this, quote, In the world of the gospel writers, what we now call miracles were not considered extraordinary. Theirs was a cosmology in which the divisions between the material and spiritual worlds were porous, and in which the gods regularly intruded into human affairs. The first recipients of Mark's gospel would not have doubted that miracles occurred, but they would have wanted to know why they were performed and what they signified. So the question then remains, why these miracles? Why an aging woman being healed? Why the resurrection of a dead girl who couldn't even carry on Jairus' family name? And for that matter, why the constant crowds? Why the narrative interruption? Why the emphasis on Jesus drawing near to those whom society has deemed untouchable? At every point, Jesus seems to be subverting our expectations and challenging our uncritical value judgments. And in so doing, he demonstrates the great reversal at the heart of God's kingdom economy. The last will be first. The humble will be exalted. The greatest will become the servant. And so while Jesus' disciples only see the crowd, Jesus sees the one, calls her out of hiding, and restores her dignity in the sight of those around her. While Jairus' friends are saying, don't bother the teacher anymore, Jesus is saying, don't be afraid. While people are busy planning a little girl's funeral complete with professional mourners, Jesus throws them out because he's busy planning a little girl's resurrection and restoring a broken family's faith. And while the world labels people unclean and untouchable, Jesus subverts social mores of cleanliness and redeems people's experience of physical touch. And like any good physician, Jesus cannot help but respond to the needs of the least of these 
to those who are vulnerable. Think about it. If you're a doctor, who do you spend the majority of your time with? Somebody in lower positions of power. They're at their most vulnerable moment. You're fully clothed. They're partly naked, if not completely. You're standing or sitting. They're possibly lying down. You're healthy. They're ill. You have the expertise. They don't have a clue what the heck is going on. You're confident of what next steps to take. They are trembling with fear because they don't know what the next hour, let alone the next you know, year of their life holds. And like a good physician, Jesus doesn't respond from a distance. He actually comes really, really close. So again and again, we see that Jesus' ministry of healing is actually accompanied by his ministry of touch. Touch equals connection, and Jesus' touch is never self-gratifying or destructive. It is always self-giving and redemptive. So Jairus, having just learned of his little girl's death, is expected to abandon hope. But desperation joined to hope and action is not despised. I remember there's a time in my life where I was particularly desperate. Uh, and I can remember a time where my life was, was interrupted abruptly. I had, after months of humming and hawing and being filled with social anxiety and a deep-seated sense of shame and fear that I could not yet name but felt in my bones, that I needed to seek some help. And so I booked an appointment with a counselor. And it was a Friday afternoon. I'm walking back home from Home Depot after having picked up a few little supplies for home improvement, and I'm pushing my two-year-old son in a bright red stroller. I cross the street, and in an instant, my whole world gets turned upside down. Um, there, is, there is a driver who's turning left, and the sun's in his eyes, and he doesn't see us. Bam! The stroller goes flying. I hit my head on the windshield. I roll off the car. Three days later, I have my appointment with my counselor that I'd booked months earlier. No broken bones for me. No broken bones for my two-year-old. But a lot of healing to take place. I sit down in the counselor's chair, and I start talking about these feelings of shame and these feelings of isolation. Because frankly, I was incredibly afraid of my own body. I was afraid of touch. I was afraid of myself. I was afraid of people in positions of power and influence. So afraid, in fact, that when my first son was born, two years earlier, I was so, I felt so ashamed of myself and I felt so unclean that I cringed every time I changed his diaper because I didn't know if it was okay. And I don't remember this, but my wife recounts the first time I went to premarital counseling 12 years earlier. And she said that my whole body was shaking with fear. 
And what's so interesting is that my emotional journey of healing from some significant trauma in my early teen years paralleled my more recent journey of physical healing from my car accident. See, you got to understand, uh, I grew up with Tourette syndrome, obsessive thoughts, obsessive behavior, um, and so my well-meaning uh, parents sent me to a psychiatrist uh, where, unbeknownst to them, I was manipulated and spiritually and emotionally abused for two years. And now, on the other side of that, I have an entire team of therapists. I have a doctor. I have a counselor. I have a pastor. I have a kinesiologist. I have a massage therapist. I have a chiropractor. I have a physiotherapist. My counselor would shake my hand. My pastor would give me a hug. My, my, my physicians would, would poke me and prod me and adjust me and assess various muscle groups I didn't even know existed on my body. And meanwhile, I was told that I should probably go swimming three times a week, which required all the courage I could muster. And one evening, I broke down, and I started to cry, and, 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 and my wife, Ruth Ellen, said to me, I see Jesus sitting beside you on your sickbed. I didn't know that, that, that these two journeys of healing, healing from trauma physically and healing from trauma emotionally and spiritually, would intersect. But in that moment, my flannel graph Jesus picture changed. And I had the only vision I have ever had of Jesus. I'm weeping. And he opens this door and there's, and there's a warm hearth, like, the, like the, the fireplace is lit. Everything has this sort of warm amber glow. And I see Jesus' face. It's tender, it's wrinkled, it's old, it's wise. It's like a grandfather I never had seen, but I fully knew. And he says, welcome. He welcomed me into his home. And my recovering son, Anthony, is beside me. And he turns his face from me, to my son, and he says, welcome. And he embraces me. I've never been touched so much in my life as over the past three years, being poked and prodded and restored. And the gift of being reconnected with my own body and with other people and with God is being restored through this process as well. And as the worship team really beautifully reminded us this morning, no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. And so while Jesus' ministry of healing does give us further proof of his sonship, his miraculous work is not about creating a supernatural spectacle for consumption. Instead, it's about creating sacred space for communion so allow me to close with a final encouragement found in script, uh, the, our scripture passage for the morning. Jesus, the great physician, has tenderly pushed past the crowds, past the noise, past the spectacle into the very heart of this family's home for the purpose of connection. And what he says in those quiet, tender moments is this, Talitha kum. 
Jesus declares this over this little girl's life as he clasps her hand. I love how Mark's gospel retains the original Aramaic uh, because this is the family's heart language. The literal translation is, lamb, get up. Even King Jesus knows what it means to be brought low. After all, the king over all became servant of all and offered himself for all as what? As a lamb led to the slaughter. But praise God, because this lamb too will get up. So we thank you, Jesus, our great physician, for this reversal that you demonstrate time and again. We fall to, to our knees at your feet, and you extend to us your hand, and you lift us up. I pray that any of those here today who need to experience the comfort, compassion, tenderness, and safety of your embrace would experience it in a fresh way today. Please receive this benediction from 1 Peter 5. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Because God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered for a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong firm and steadfast to him be the power forever and ever amen thanks for joining us today we hope that this message has challenged encouraged and inspired you as we continue learning and growing together in discipleship to jesus every week you'll find new chapel messages on our channel from local and international speakers ranging in diverse and engaging topics. So go ahead and subscribe for the latest of what's going on in chapel. Much love and happy listening.